Luke 10, 1 to 9. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others. He sent them out two by two ahead of him. They went to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is huge, but the workers are few. So I asked the Lord of Harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out like lamb among wolves. Do not take pur a purse or a bag or sandals. And, do, and don't greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, may this house be blessed with peace. If someone works there to bring peace, your blessing of peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eat, and drink anything they give you. Workers are, not wor workers are worthy of their pay. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcome, eat what is given to you. Heal sick people who are there. Tell them God's kingdom has come near you. Amen. Amen. I, uh, I particularly love the emphatic, go! <laughs> I could just imagine Jesus doing that to his disciples. Go! What are you doing hanging around here? Get out of here. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see you all this morning. Now, I know that most of you are good Canadian citizens. And so you understand how important it is to follow rules. And I know that comes easy to all of you. And I say this because having driven in South Africa during the Christmas holidays and driving here again, I'm reminded how everyone just, you know, naturally follows the road rules and seems to just obey all the laws and all the rules. That is not my reality. It might be because I was the youngest of three sons and if you are a third child, you know that the rules just never apply to you. Uh, you just somehow you are exempt from them. Uh, and I, I, I'm fascinated when I look at my own life. I really don't have to look at anybody else's life. When I look at my own life, how naturally I resist rules. If you put a rule in front of me and you say, well, you can't do it. My first response is going to be, well, who says so? Why not? Who made you president or prime minister or whatever or king? I will do what I want to do. It comes natural for us. It is natural to push the boundaries. Our children do it. We did it as children. We got upset because our parents tried to enforce rules. Whether it was bedtime rule or when you could or couldn't watch TV or anything like that or... You had to make your bed. It didn't matter. Whatever the rule was, we would push against those rules as much as we could. And then we became parents. We didn't understand why our children would push against the rules we made. Yet we still push against the rules. So whether it's the speed limit that we push against, whether it's the number of items in our basket at the express checkout lane, Maybe, maybe for some, it's the declared income in our tax returns. We, we want to push the rules. We don't like rules. And maybe this is why so many people get so frustrated with religion. Because religion is just a bunch of rules. In fact, I, I heard somebody speaking about religion and said religion is spelt D-O. It's what you do. And so you have to do all these things. And if you do these things, if you obey the rules, that what make, that's what makes you a good follower. That's what makes you good and religious. 
And so we, we go to church and we pray and we give. And those are good things. But we do them out of a sense of obligation because we think it's the rules. And then we discover Jesus Christ. And we discover grace. And we discover mercy. And, and we find this incredible truth that, that we're loved and we're accepted not on the basis of following rules, but on the grace and the gift of a good father. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't any rules. But the rules don't put us in that place in the presence of God. Any sort of conformity, any sort of trying to obey, any sort of trying to achieve and earn my way into the presence of God, Scripture tells us is painfully, is painfully useless. You will not earn your way into the presence of God. And so when we find that freedom, when we discover we're received and accepted by grace, well, that's when we can live with freedom, doing what Jesus invites us to do. This morning, I've titled my message, The Do's and Don'ts of Following Jesus Christ. The Do's and Don'ts of Following Jesus Christ. If you've been with us, or, or let me rephrase that, if you're visiting with us this morning, the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at that passage that we just read this morning. Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 9, where Jesus calls his disciples together and he's having a conversation with them. And he kind of first up says, hey, get rid of the distractions, open your eyes, have a look around. Realize the harvest field is huge. Realize the harvest is ready. There are countless people around us who are ready to receive the gospel of the kingdom. The good news of Jesus Christ, the fact that God is in the flesh and God is here walking amongst us, longing for relationship. Go and preach that because people are ready to receive it. And Jesus says to them, as we read there, now I know as you look around, you realize this task is huge. So pray, pray that God will send workers, pray that God will send people to go and share this good news. And then when you've said, amen. Get up and go and answer that prayer. Go and be the person you're praying for to go and take the gospel, to take the good news. So that's what we've been looking at in Luke chapter 10. But Luke chapter 10 verses 1 to 9 exists in a context. It exists in a bigger picture. And I don't want to be one of those guys who takes a passage right out of context and preaches a nice neat message about it and forgets what's on either side. So this morning, as we still consider Luke 10, 1 to 9, I want us to think about and have a look at what we read in Luke chapter 9 and Luke chapter 10. So if you've got your Bibles with you this morning, you're welcome to turn to Luke chapter 9. We're not going to read the whole Luke 9 and 10. If you've got your Bible on your phone, I'll be using the CSB version, not the, the one in the pew, but it's close enough. You'll be able to follow along. I promise you, you won't get lost. Luke chapter 9, all the way through Luke chapter 10 is a reminder of why Jesus speaks this to us. And as we look into these passages of Scripture, we're going to see Jesus says to his followers and says to his disciples, there are a couple of things that I don't want you to do. Don't do this if you're going to be my disciple. And then on the other side, there are a couple of things I do want you to do. Do this if you will be my disciple. So like any good teacher, let's start with the negative. So I don't want you walking out of here with the negative. I want you to walk out of here with the positive. But let's start with the things that we don't do. Jesus says, don't do these things. 
In Luke chapter 9, it begins with Jesus summons the 12. He calls the 12 together and he gave them power and authority over the demons and to heal diseases. And then he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And now if you've got your Bible open in Luke chapter 9, you'll see some incredible journey and some incredible accounts and stories that happen. It begins with feeding the 5,000 as Jesus performs this miracle and feeds this vast crowd. Flowing out of that, after he feeds the 5,000, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus is kind of walking along with the disciples. And he, he wants to just kind of test them, I guess, and figure out if they understand. And so he sort of says, well, I, I've heard some rumors. I'm hearing some word on the street about me. But uh, who do people say that I am? And so they start talking about the prophets and John and all of this sort of stuff. And Jesus goes, okay, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter goes, you're the Christ, the son of God. And so Peter confesses him. And then we go straight from that. Jesus predicts his death. And you can imagine Peter and the disciples going, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Savior. You're the anointed one of God. And in their minds, they're thinking, here comes redemption for Israel. And so Jesus goes, I'm about to die. I'm on my way to the cross And he invites his followers to take up their own cross, to embrace dying to self. Then after that, he's transfigured. His appearance is changed and he's revealed in the presence of God. The disciples hear the voice of God declaring him to be the son of God. Listen to my son. And he comes from that and he demonstrates the power that he has because he is God's son. And as he's walking in the Holy Spirit, he demonstrates his power over the powers of darkness, over the demons. And then again, predicts his death. And it's this point where the disciples show just how clueless they really are. Because all of this stuff has happened, all these comments that Jesus has made. And what do the disciples do? In Luke 9, 46 to 50... They argue over who's the greatest. It's like they've lost sight of everything Jesus has done and said. And they've kind of gone, okay, we don't know what he's on about. So why don't we just determine who's second in command? Let's find out who's Jesus' right-hand man. And, And we argue over this. And then they see somebody else driving out demons. And they proudly say to Jesus, we stopped him. Hey, Jesus, we stopped a guy helping somebody. In your name. We stopped a guy driving out demons because we don't know him. Even though he's doing it in your your name. And Jesus, rather than giving up on them, does this. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51 and onwards. When the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. So he sent messengers ahead of himself, and on the way they entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But they did not welcome him because he determined to journey to Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to consume them? Now, some translations and some early manuscripts include the words, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and they went on to another village. 
In fact, some translations translate verse 55 and 56 to say, You don't know what kind of spirit you belong to. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy people's lives, but to save them. You know, there are two things we need to understand for this passage and for those few verses to really make sense to us. The first thing is the Samaritans, and the second thing is that line, just as Elijah did. So let's think about the Samaritans for a moment and why it's important that there's this little Samaritan village and this little interaction that Jesus has just before he sends out the 72 in Luke chapter 10. You see, Samaria was the wrong side of the tracks, so to speak. Samaria was a no-go zone. Good Jews did not go to Samaria. They did not associate with Samaritans. You see, the Samaritans were a mixed race offspring of the Israelites from the northern kingdom. When when Israel was conquered by the Assyrians, the most prominent and influential people of Israel were dragged away and taken into captivity. Yet the poor of the land were left behind and they remained. And as the Assyrians came in and this foreign power overthrew, so the Jews would intermarry with the Assyrians. And they kept some of their belief and some of their faith, but they kind of incorporated what the Assyrians believed and practiced. And so... They developed this religion that blended elements of their truth and of false paganism. In fact, 2 Kings chapter 17 kind of gives some of this account. But 2 Kings chapter 17 verse 33 says, They feared the Lord and served their own gods according to the customs of the nations among whom they had been carried away into exile. In other words, they still claim to serve Jehovah. They still claim to serve God Almighty. But at the same time, they changed and adapted and developed their own priesthood. They built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And they devised the sacrificial system of their own making. And so the Jews in Jesus' time, by then, they viewed the Samaritans really as a mongrel race with a mongrel religion. That was their view. They were like dogs. They, 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 were just, they shouldn't be there. They, they shouldn't be around. We have nothing to do with them. And we, we go past them. And so when Jesus determines we're going to Jerusalem, and the quickest way there is through Samaria, the disciples and most Jews would have gone, no, no, we don't go through. We go around. If it means a couple of extra days so that we're not contaminated by these unclean people, then that's what we're going to do. We're going to go around. And so Jesus says, no, we're going through. And he sends messengers ahead of himself. Messengers who will go and prepare a place. And so as the messengers come in, so the Samaritans hear. And and maybe they're kind of warm to receiving Jesus because they've heard stories about Jesus. But they soon realize, no, Jesus is going all the way through to Jerusalem for the Passover. So the Samaritans go, no, no. Then you have no part of us. We don't agree with you. We don't believe what you believe. Uh, Your temple is wrong. Your practices are wrong. And so, no, we're not going to help you. And then James and John, living up to their names. Remember, their names mean sons of thunder. James and John go, should we call down fire just as Elijah did? That reference to Elijah was full of significance for them in that place and at that time. 
You see, the incident to which James is referring to is one that we read in 2 Kings chapter 1, 1 through, through 17 and, and onwards. You see, it's the story of Elijah's confrontation with the idolatrous king Ahaziah. So Elijah's prophesied condemnation against this king because he's idolatrous and he's pursuing false gods and he's calling for direction from false gods. So the king sends 50 soldiers off to go get Elijah and drag him before him. So the 50 soldiers go off and they come before Elijah and the, and the, the captain of these soldiers sort of says to Elijah, the king has summoned you, we're here, we're going. So Elijah, prophet of God, simply responds and goes, well, if I'm a prophet of God, then let fire fall and consume you. And fire fell. The, the Hebrew kind of gives the context and gives the idea that it was instant incineration. It was like those 50 had no idea what happened. Then one moment we're standing in front of this strange man in, in robes. The next moment they were ash at his feet. So the king, undeterred, sends another 50 soldiers. The same thing happens. Those 50 soldiers go over and they call Elijah. And Elijah says the same thing. If I'm a prophet of God, let fire fall and bam, they're consumed. So the next 50 kind of get a bit of a wake up call. And the captain of those 50 falls on his knees in front of Elijah, begs for his life. I can imagine the guy going, please, I'm just doing my job. I've got a wife and I've got kids and, you know, I would like to live beyond today. So Elijah goes with them back to the king and he prophesies to the king, your life is over. And that's what happens. The king dies. And so this is what James and John are thinking about because when we read Scripture, we know that that happens in the same place of Samaria. So every time the Jews walk through Samaria, I can well bet many of them were kind of hoping, God, when are you going to send fire to wipe out these Samaritans again? I mean, these guys have watered down your truth. They've watered down your word. Please send fire. Wipe them out. And this is what they want to do. Yet Jesus rebukes them. Jesus rebukes them. He says, you don't know what kind of spirit you belong to. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy people's lives, but to save them. You know what Jesus is saying right there is, hey, you're my disciples. The spirit you belong to is a spirit of grace. It's a spirit of love. It's a spirit of patience. It's a spirit of forgiveness. I don't want anybody... Being consumed by fire. Don't try and quote the Old Testament to me. I saw in one of my friend's Instagram feeds this past week the line that said, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. I thought, isn't that just so beautiful? I can do all things. That's exactly what the disciples are doing. They know there's an Old Testament reference. They know there's an account. And Jesus is going, that account was a different time, a different reason, a different purpose. Yes, for the glory of God. Yes, it's difficult to make sense of, but there was a purpose in that. Don't try and take that and now determine what we're going to do the same. No, because the spirit you belong to is the spirit of love. And so Jesus says the same to us. You might not want to call fire down on your neighbors. But don't we sometimes 
think thoughts similar to that. People disagree with us on politics. People disagree with us on religion. People disagree with us on their life choices and their practices. And and in some way, we wish God would deal with them and get rid of them. So that we wouldn't have to interact with them. And Jesus says, don't do that. That's not the spirit you belong to. You belong to my spirit. You need to go to those places. Even though they're not going to prepare for you. Even though they're going to try and shun you and kick you out. You go. You go and you love and you serve. So don't. Don't call fire and forget about Don't judge and and determine you know. Don't do that. So what is the thing we're supposed to do in the midst of going out into this harvest field that is plenty? Well, the do is in Luke chapter 10. So we go into Luke chapter 10 and in verse 1 through 9, Jesus sends out the 72, tells them what to do as they go and preach and proclaim the kingdom. And then in verse 17 of Luke chapter 10, we read, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. So Jesus said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However... Don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Here the disciples are rejoicing in the power they have in the name of Jesus. Remember, Jesus has sent them out. This is why I love when I read this passage of scripture. Jesus has sent them out. I don't know what Jesus was doing. I I would love to have been there to watch. Jesus has sent these 72 out. And if you will excuse my kind of mind and imagination going there, I can almost imagine Jesus just sitting down with his feet up, just enjoying some peace and quiet for a change as they're off. And so the disciples are in little groups, two, three, four, whatever. And they're out ministering. And in the name of Jesus, they're doing the very things they saw Jesus do. They're casting out demons. They're healing the sick. I can just imagine them being blown away. And in the name of Jesus, and before they finish the sentence, bam. And, and they're like, oh, oh, oh. did you see that, Peter? Did you see that? See that? I just healed him. He can see. And John's like, oh, I just raised the lame dude. No, they probably weren't doing that. But still, they're out doing what they see Jesus do. And so they come back and they're understandably excited at this. Hey, Jesus, this is what we were doing. And Jesus kind of goes, don't worry about that. Now, I know there's a deeper challenge for us there. And we really need to wrestle with what that means and what that looks like for us. But that's not what Jesus focuses on with them. He says, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice in this simple truth. Your name is written in the book of life in heaven. Your name is written in the book of life in heaven. Amen? Amen. Don't rejoice in that stuff. Where is your name written? If you're in Christ, if I'm your Lord, if you're my disciple, that's what you rejoice in because you have life. Your home in eternity exists and it is assured. But this is what I love about Jesus, the master teacher. He doesn't leave it there. 
Because I think Jesus knew. If he left it at this point, those disciples would have done what I would have done. I'd be like, woohoo, I'm saved. Forget the lot of you. I'm going to go do my own thing. I'm going to live my life. Doesn't matter what I do because I'm saved and my name's written in eternity. So it's now just about me. And Jesus, I think, understands the human heart. It's not about cruising along in life. There's still something to do. And so he gives a New Testament illustration. Remember, the Old Testament illustration was fire on who? The Samaritans. That was the Old Testament illustration, fire on the Samaritans. And in Luke chapter 10, he gives the illustration You see, as it progresses, somebody comes and they're interacting with Jesus about the greatest commandments. And Jesus says to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, somebody, some wise cracker kind of says, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus gives the parable of the good. Who? Good Samaritan. Should we call fire down on these Samaritans? Let me tell you about the good Samaritan. Can you imagine their jaws dropping to the dirt right there? Like, Jesus, don't you understand the Samaritans? Those dudes? And Jesus gives this illustration. This is what you do. You love. And you serve. Just like the illustration of that good Samaritan. He knew that was a Jew. He knew what society said. He knew that there was no... They weren't to have anything to do with each other, but he saw a need and he responded to that need. That's what you do as my disciple. You minister in love. You don't presume judgment. You don't call for destruction. Instead, you rejoice because your name is written in the book of life. And because of that, you go out and you serve and you minister and you give and you bless and you love. No matter who that person is. So where do we land on this? What's the application? What's the, what's the conclusion? I think surely it is simply this. As I read through Luke chapter 9 and 10. I have to open my eyes. Get rid of the distractions. Look around and see that the world around me is desperately crying out for life. For hope. For salvation and redemption. The world is indeed ripe. For the harvest. And so as I see that, I pray that God would send workers and I answer the prayer and go. But as I go, I don't call fire down on those who are different to me. Instead, I rejoice continually that my name is in the book of life. And I serve and I do whatever it takes to present Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. As we said last week and the week before, I embrace discomfort if needs be. Because it's no longer about me. It's about worshiping Jesus as I give and as I serve and as I go. There are others whose name is not in that book. I need love, serve, pray and proclaim the gospel. Make the kingdom of God known to them. Doing whatever it takes. Let's pray together. Jesus, we, we are in awe of you. 
We marvel at your teaching. We thank you that you have given a command to us. Jesus, you've reminded us that the harvest field is ripe and ready. And you've told us to pray for workers. And so, Lord, we do. God, send workers into the harvest field around this church, around the homes that are represented here this morning, into our neighbors' lives. For those of us who will go to work this week, into our colleagues' lives. Send workers, Jesus. And then, Jesus, as we say amen and open our eyes, help us by your Spirit to go and answer that prayer and to go. Then, Lord, as we go, remind us we're not there to pronounce judgment. We're not there to call fire from heaven. We are there to love and to serve. And come what may to simply rejoice that our names are in your book. Help us, Holy Spirit, to do whatever it takes so that more would turn to you and respond to your invitation of life. And indeed, may we impact the world for your name and your kingdom. And as one body, united in the Spirit of God, we agree and together we say, Amen. Amen.